Previously on Storyological. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, yeah. someone who has an idiosyncratic way of speaking, that yeah. we're going to go see this week. Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett. No, finish. This is Storyological, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is Through the Wardrobe by Lucy Caldwell, which was written for Radio 4, but I found in her collection Multitudes, which came out this Radio year. Radio 4? Uh-huh. How many radios do you have in England, Britain? Seven. You had seven radios, okay. Yeah, seven BBC radios. Okay. Um, so this story is of an unnamed boy and his experience in growing up in the wrong-gendered body and of his desire for two separate dresses one the dress of um, Belle from Beauty and the Beast when he's very young and the second a gold dress that belongs to his sister when he's uh, in puberty and it's a very slight story at eight pages I think but it digs into his feelings of intense wrongness and fear and yeah the terror he has of trying to knowing that he can't express the wrongness that he feels inside himself to his family and the the character who i guess epitomizes this for for him for me is the dad alan epitomizes the fear yeah epitomizes okay. his inability to be able to are you are you saying alan is the tire iron in the story <laughs> yes it's a bit harsh on alan yeah and you know he doesn't seem like he's a bad man but he does clearly have strong views about what kind of a person his son should be at the very least strong fears yeah and his son certainly should not be oversensitive yeah. right yes. and and almost in that one phrase you can see how it echoes through this kid's upbringing of like i can't be who i'm supposed to be who i feel i am and yeah the way lucy writes it is just uh devastating yeah, happily so. Uh, I was reminded of Adam Johnson, and this story felt like it was the, the kind of story that I want to read over and over. It was intoxicating in its mix of lush prose and precisely calibrated narrative. Like one threshold after another got thrown in front of you, described beautifully and, and emotionally, and then you crossed it and you went on. And it was like, it was like you were falling down the most gorgeous staircase, and you were just in love with the ache on the way down. And then you hit the bottom of the staircase and the, the story changes the, its the pitch. <laughs> Otherwise known as the floor. Yeah, yeah, good one. Pitch, that's perfect. It's a perfect lead in. <laughs> because the, the final section of the story moves from being descriptive to being instructive. So it moves from saying this is what happened to giving the kid at the center of the story the this encouragement it says things like look at yourself stay where you are don't worry the kid this kid has finally had the nerve to put on the dress that he's been wanting to wear for a long time he's found it within himself and he's found the space within his life to do it and the the author the person who's telling the story you suddenly start to feel like maybe it's this person telling the story in the future, looking back at themselves and kind of saying, right, shit's going to get bad, but you can do it. And I found it so incredibly moving. Less it's going to get better than remember who you are because it will be hard to hold on to it. 
Exactly. And that's why I think that's part of my problem with, I mean, I wasn't, didn't see that much of the it will get better campaign because it was mainly focused in the US. But I did hear about it and think it seemed a little trite and like, ah, do you know what I saw in the office the other day? There was an advert, a poster on the wall that said, wear purple on this day to support LGBT um, teenagers. And I was like, in what way is that going to be supporting them? Like yeah, a yeah. bunch of people they can't see wear wear a color and then do nothing. Yeah, which is why I think the just briefly to to run across the sidelines into this, that it gets better. Oh, I understand how it seems trite, but at the same time, I feel like that was a few years ago. And Tumblr, like there's a there's a whole mess of internet now. But I think some of those videos came at a time when it was just beginning to feel like it was a thing that you could flood the internet with stories of an identity and tell people, look, where you are right now, maybe there aren't a lot of people like you or a lot That's of true. people that can, that that will accept who you are. But the world is big. And if you can hold on to that memory of the gold dress and try to find people there are better places. Both this story and my pick for this week reminded me of pet milk. And one of the phrases that, I, that I'm going to pull out of talking about pet milk is a Doppler effect. And this story has a Doppler effect, exactly that kind of rising in pitch. There is such an intensity of the, the swirl into that moment where the boy finally puts on a dress, finally finds an image of himself and a performance of himself and an identity that feels like home and it smacks you. And then exactly, there's a change in pitch in the way that, you know, if you're, if a car is coming at you and somebody is sitting on top of the car playing a single note on a tuba and it rushes at you and it just gets higher and higher and higher in pitch. And then as soon as it gets past you, it starts going and it gets lower and lower and further away. The, the end of the story where she does switch, not the point of view because it's all untold in the second person she switches the perspective. She switches the, the kind of tense from where we're viewing the story. And it does, you're right, it does two things. It does that, that moment, whereas in a lot of second-person stories, it tends to be the person in the story is the person telling the story. But this makes it very a very strong image of that in your head because that flip feels like this person knows the story that they're telling because it is their story. It also, I felt like... It gave me a sense, like in Hitchcock would do this thing where he would he would dolly the camera back. He would pull the camera back from a scene. At the same time, he zoomed in. Mm, which leaves you feeling kind of seasick. It, yeah, exactly. And so it felt so right because that moment where the boy has, has on this dress and has on this image of, of themselves, and it's so joyous to them that the kind of wrench... Of, of what they will go through as they, they attempt to come out and live that life. It is mm. often a nauseating, surreal process as you as you deal with with fractures and as you deal with what I loved is is the narrator describes in one sense the worst thing is the the sympathy and compassion of the people, for example, Alan, their father, yeah. who had helped build the cage and helped build the difficulty, seeing them be compassionate or have sympathy was difficult. And I love that in that choice of swing, it it would be like, like Pachan Wook said, that all the subtle things you do build up to the viewer or reader's perception. 
And that swing helps build that perception of how those years will feel without having to take us through the years, in fact. There's um, a section from early on that I want to read. On Christmas Day, your oldest sister gets Snow White, and the middle one Aurora, and the youngest Tinkerbell. You open yours and you see the green felt, and you feel your body turn to stone, to ice, as if you're one of the statues that Polly and Diggory from the magician's nephew find in the cursed hall of the enchanted palace. Your mum has been reading you and your next oldest sister that book at bedtime, and it gives you nightmares, the thought of all the people trapped inside bodies that are theirs and not theirs, bodies that they can't control or even move, victims of some wicked spell. I love how she takes those very familiar images and makes us see them as a representation of what this kid is going through mm-hmm. and understand how powerful it is for for kids to be able to identify with different ideas and different stories because this kid in particular doesn't have anything like that in their own lives, doesn't have anybody to understand them. Um, and I found it very beautiful. And the same thing happens with the the use of Belle and the uh, the other Disney princesses. It is it is uh, both scary and thrilling to really understand that yeah the the stories that that kids absorb when they're young, the advertisements they see, they they're all there for you to find your identity in, and that can be scary because that's what sometimes we don't want. I'm even going to say parents as though I'm not old enough to be a parent. Now, we don't want parents to be like, no, 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 we can't have our kids watching that. That's bad for them. Because, you know, we want to say, no, no, kids are smart. They know the difference between fantasy and reality. But, of course, the real thing has always been that the parents don't remember. They don't understand that, to a large extent, they are the same thing. It's not that kids don't know the difference between those statues are fantasy. It's that those statues mean something to the kid. Meaning is not the same as reality. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Uh, which, brief side note, this reminded me that when I was younger, I had this real existential terror about this memory of this ice palace and this queen and people in stone. And it was only much later in my life, because, of course, I had read the Narnia books and seen this BBC adaptation at different times in my life. It was only much later when I came across an image from the BBC adaptation of the Narnia series that I you know, had a small freak out in my chest. And I was like, that's it. And I felt the same way when I read this. I was like, yeah, it was so scary. And, you know, part of me, you know, read into that and thought about uh, often being referred to as a girl when I was growing up and wondering, you know, if there there's small flickers of that feeling that somehow your body is not right for you Mm. and you can read into statues that becoming a living statue that feeling just like this just like what they describe of of it being the wrong body which then made me think oh yeah my other fear is being possessed those two fears are in the truthiness sense of the word just the exact opposite of each other which, which means they're all part of the same whole i enjoy how she attaches this idea of, of living in the wrong body to um, to these two dresses that the the kid sees in their life. I think what I enjoyed is that the she attaches this story to objects which to a young girl are very accessible, available. They can see a dress, openly express desire for it, wear that dress in public, and be rewarded for it. And yet. To this kid that's born as a boy, 
it is so completely inaccessible, even though he's surrounded by women and surrounded by dresses and surrounded by these sisters who at various points in life have dressed him up in girls' clothing. He's still not allowed to express that desire and experience that. And I love this description of it because it unpicks how gender is this entirely constructed thing of society that is almost invisible to many people right it is just fundamental boys do this and girls do that when we talk about parallel realities often in science fiction it's as though there's this other reality just around the corner that we can't see how tragic that really the way we often live is we live in sight of all of these parallel realities that for various reasons we're not allowed to step into mm -hmm. um yeah, and whether the, those realities are created through gender or... Television. Rel <laughs> relative wealth. But or... like commercials. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, to get ridiculously literary for a moment, part of uh, you know what I was talking about with the Doppler effect, the, the intoxication, for me, it, it comes from the way she varies sentence structure, the, the rhythm in what she says. So the story opens like this. It starts with the bell dress. Your mom takes you all to the store in Dongle Place the week it opens, braving the lashing rain and the queue outside, all of you jumping and shivering with cold and excitement. Inside is the most magical place you've ever seen. Your sisters go hopping and squealing to the cuddle toys at the back, heaped right to the ceiling, but you just stand, clutching your mom's hand, unable to move or even to breathe. It is like being in heaven or outer space, somewhere far away from the gray November street and dirty puddles outside. In that opening is the same whipping, the same Doppler effect, because she's giving almost always this combination of short and long, and it's stretching and compressing through that paragraph. It's so delightful to read, and it's working on you. It's working on me at an almost unconscious level, and mm -hmm. it's only as I get into it and I feel the rhythm and I feel the truth of the rhythm and I finish the story that it all snaps into place. My pick for this week is a story by Arinison Okaji called Poco Poco. I don't know how to pronounce Poco Poco. Uh, when I looked it up, it is a Spanish word, which I don't know how that would exactly relate to the island of Sal in Cape Verde. Well, they're speaking Oh, right, they're speaking a mix of Portuguese and Spanish. Anyway, yeah. I figured it out for myself at the same time you told me. <laughs> um, Poco Poco means like slowly, slowly, little, little. So a couple of times in the story, they say, no stress, no stress, or mm -hmm. small, small. And I'm thinking, ah, poco, 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 poco. Don't know if that's right. Uh, so poco, poco, as I said, also reminds me of pet milk. It's the story of two sisters, in particular one sister. The narrator of the story is talking about their visit to the island of Sal in Cape Verde. And they are tourists. And they talk about, well, she talks about the life of the island and how beautiful everyone is and how strange it is to be black but also still seen and known as tourists in this place. And what happens is that very briefly we, we get this crash of a relationship where these two sisters are here and they go on one tour and the narrator sees and feels this connection to the tour guide and there's this brief spark between them some love making in the sand, a couple of dates in the night, and I believe, what's it called, Santa Maria? Yeah, Santa Maria walking around. And then the sisters, our narrator, is back on an airplane, flying away, 
leaving it behind. And like pet milk, it hits you with this rush of being alive and being connected and being open and kind of like an antenna receptive to all the signals of the world. And then as as she lifts up on that plane, you, you start to come crashing back down to earth as she leaves. But I don't feel deadened or, or crushed by it. I still feel lifted even in the sadness because the way that sadness is described is still, it still has the echo and the fire of the life that she got. And I don't mean to make it sound like how Stella got her groove back, but I'm just going to throw that out there. And the audience at home that knows will laugh. Uh, Emma's Emma's looking looking at me really like she has no idea. How Stella got her groove back was this story about a woman that uh, might have gone to a country in Africa. I never watched it, but it was an older woman that had a relationship with a younger man. And so she took that fire back into her life. Mm, And that's not what this story is about because it's not an older woman. And we don't know that her life wasn't already full of fire but you know that's the magic of stories the story is told in the past tense so the fact that she's telling this story with this with this amazing life means that she still got it from wherever that is the important thing the the passion that she finds she does seem to be taking away with her and and also she's communicating it to us which is the thing that great travel writers can do it's really hard to write about a location and make it seem as exciting as the experience. You know, so many times friends will come home from holiday, oh, how was it? How, oh, it was it was hot and um, busy and, um, you know, and you think, okay, you're, you're not doing justice to the experience. But what she does here is she, she brings that dislocating wonder onto the page. And so you understand how exciting it is to her. You feel the excitement in yourself and you feel like you say alive and all your senses open by the end of it yeah now i downed uh, a good a half dozen of of a renaissance stories so that dislocated wonder i actually think is in almost all of the stories the fact that they're on va- uh, vacation there it it does it gives a it gives a different solidity to that point that that you can understand it, uh, and to me, what was kind of dislocating but spectacular about about the writing is that when we I think when we both say that the story is alive, it is not just oh it feels alive. She writes in a way that reminded me. We haven't talked about Yoda in a while. It reminded me oh, when Yoda talks about the force. He talks about is this energy that binds us to everything around us, to the rocks, to the trees. And Arinison has this, and I mean this both figuratively and literally, an imaginative force that goes into the world and rips out life from it. Sun-soaked yawns that hover, or barren spots that unfurl in a series of lithe morning stretches, frowns on people's clothes, orange paint spilled in the sky... Um, and this is one I saw you underline too. A seatbelt's tongue put into the red throat of the buckle. Oh yeah, I love how the her language imbues everything around her with a life and body of its own. Exactly, yeah. Everything has a life and a body of its own, and it has it has the simultaneous effect that it both makes the world feel imbued with that life and body, and it also makes the narrator feel imbued with that life and body and so 
when they have sex on the beach in the waves and it's kind of annoying because the sand is in their person the writing there the the writing of the story has brought us to that moment where those two people in this place become solidified not just as two individuals but two individuals in this world i saw her read at the unsung live event this week and that's where i bought her collection if you haven't gone to see unsung live you should do that you should they always have excellent readers who's reading next time uh helen marshall and what date is that mm-hmm. insert later <laughs> <laughs> i thought you had an idea isn't it in the calendar yeah, uh anyway go ahead in my memory um she read the story following and the first line of that is still i keep just thinking of it is that i plucked you from the ground like a root vegetable and in that one sentence the whole room just leant forward and i was like oh oh my god and there, I was just captivated by the whole story. And so I'm very jealous you've read half the collection. I want to work my way through it. Yeah, and I feel like part of what make it st- makes it stick in your your mind is there's there's a description in another story where she describes, I believe it's a grandmother, as being grainy, like she lived inside a TV. Uh, and there is a static, actually, and a lot of the descriptions in these stories and the way that life is brought onto the page that almost is uncomfortable. It almost pulls you out of the story sometimes, and yet the force of it keeps you in. So, for example, when I was describing the lovemaking on the sand, Mm -hmm. as I have described now for perhaps the third or fourth time, you might have in your head this this romantic image. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in the old meaning of romantic, a kind of heightened emotional... sublime state and that is kind of present but it is present that includes these concluding lines he buries the condom in the sand i tell him his sand baby will punch its fist through it will uncurl it and hold the green veins of our night up as an offering and that's what i mean by static is they've just had some sexy time and then your brain is like whoa (laughs) Uh, dislocating again yeah exactly yeah it's dislocating and the magic of it is that dislocation, that static, makes the world become clearer in your mind and actually locate you more firmly in the soil from which she is ripping you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to follow that, so I'm just going to talk about a different subject, which is yeah. reading this made me really want more from some of the SF space opera style stories that I read. It really made me want to see want to read stories that explored other planets in the emotional way that this story explores Cape Verde like I want to read stories that invoke wonder more than just a rundown of how the air feels and what the landscape looks like but how it feels to be in the heart of that person how the the terror and joy and emotional experience of it runs through them and tears open their ribcage and remakes them as a new person yeah if anybody has any recommendations for those stories definitely let me know i had the exact same thoughts that her imagination is muscular and it's like the the fights of fancy rope you into these surprisingly physical forms and the the silhouettes are blessed with teeth Mm -hmm. i mean just and, you know, in this, in this podcast, we talk about speculative fiction a lot and we mix things together. And something that occurred to me in reading this is in no way does that belt buckle really have a throat 
by which I mean a human throat. And no one spilled orange in the sky. By that I mean that, you know, in a in another, in a Ted Chiang story, those aliens, sure, they're metaphors because there are humans that think of time in the way of those aliens. But those aliens in the story are aliens. Mm-hmm. And they really are there. Yeah. And yeah, exactly what you're saying about secondary world fantasy or going to other planets. I believed in the images of this woman's fantasy. I believed in her imagination more strongly than I believe in quite a lot of the actual reality of fantasy in a so-called fantasy story. And I, I the same feeling. I, I, whatever it is I love in fantasy, I love in this story as well, mm-hmm. because it still is the sense of wonder and the sense of dislocation, whether you're describing an alien world or the island Sal in Cape Verde. I don't know why I keep saying the full name of it. <laughs> It's um, very cumbersome. Yeah. Also, I just like it. The Island Sal, Cape Verde. I remember when I was reading the Game of Thrones series, and I couldn't put them down because... Sorry, I'm sorry. I just had a Delia Sherman moment, by which I mean once we were doing charades, and I got <laughs> yeah. Lord of the Rings, and I made a movie symbol, and oh, she was yeah, like... yeah, she was very sad. <laughs> wow. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I tried to come up with an excuse, but it just is what came to my mind first. And hearing you say Game of Thrones made me think, the series was always called Song of Ice and Fire until the TV show came on and it the was Game of Thrones. The first book was called Game of Thrones, right? The first book was called Game of Thrones, yes. But it was book one of the Song of Ice and Fire uh-huh. series. Anyway, continue. Um, I think those books do do it very well. They they yes. <laughs> represent the emotional reality of living in that frankly barbaric world. And they do it in a way that makes you feel horror and excitement and thrills and scared and everything like you physically can feel what it would be like to see like the white people walking to be living on the wall to be fighting for your life white people here meaning the kind of zombie-like figures in game of thrones (laughs) not that there's a strange race of caucasians that freaks people (laughs) out which i mean would be not that dissimilar to our reality um I feel like it's, and it's really important that I think it's worth noting that it's not because the emotional reality is better or that we just happen to like it. It's because as humans, giving us the emotional reality of a place, giving us the human experience of a place that is more than just a description of what is seen helps us be there because that is how we experience as that's how our consciousness works it's just how we experience empathy oh you're having an emotion hey i've had that emotion too right right and so like in a in ted chang stories that we we talked about before to to bring in you know a really awesome sf uh person into this conversation right he's not giving us landscape that might not be what he most enjoys writing it might not be the way he gives us the emotional reality but he does give us, he, he gives us an emotional and physical reality in the things he chooses to describe. A, a, a thing, that, a fallacy, a tendency that you could fall into in writing about going to an alien world or setting your world or setting your story in a secondary world fantasy is thinking, I'm in a different place. So I have to describe what that place looks like. Mm-hmm. No, you have to describe whatever you need to describe to make it feel alive to us. Whatever works for you. Whatever works for you, kid. Adult. Grandpa, Sam Delaney. I don't know who's listening to this. Are we done? Yeah, I thought so. Thanks for listening, readers. This has been a podcast called Story Logical, where we talk about two stories. This week, we talked about two stories, which is less than the sum total of stories that exist in the 
known universe. It sure is. So if you want to tell us uh, what you loved about these stories or give us any other recommendations, then you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He's at Kuvols. And if you want to talk to us, like to us. Um, <laughs> Step to us. Heart us. Um, yeah, you can do all of that at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash storyological. And if you have enjoyed this, then please uh, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review and some stars. Oh, and you know the other thing you can do as well. I don't know the other thing that you can do as well. The other thing that we can do, that people can do to help us out is, it turns out we are eligible for the Nonfiction Award in the British Fantasy Society. Yeah. So you can head on over to their website and recommend us to other people or nominate us. Are nominations open? Yes. She says confidently, yes, yes, I checked. Do you have to have a British passport in order to (laughs) take part in this process? No, anybody can make a recommendation, um, but you have to be a member of the society to get a full-blown vote. And of course, for show notes, appropriate and inappropriate gifts, a chance to subscribe to this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. This has been the most intellectual of podcasts. (laughs) Sometimes we talk about truth and beauty and reality, and sometimes we sing stupid songs about Alan Bennett. Yep. (laughs) That's all I got. Yeah. (laughs) That's it.